0: Hi everybody, this is Damon. Before we get started, I just wanted to quickly tell you that we have a great free resource for you with this week's episode. We've partnered with Love & Magic Company to offer you the How to Bring Your Idea to Life playbook. It will give you a systematic and scientific approach to organizing teams and creating a culture of innovation. To get your free copy, head to culturefirstpodcast.com love. All right, let's get started.
1: Culture first. Culture first. Culture
0: first.
1: Culture first. Culture
0: first. Culture first. Culture first. Culture first.
2: Culture first. Culture first. Culture first. Culture first. Culture first. Culture first.
0: Culture first. i I'm Damon Quartz, and this is Culture First. When the team at Culture Amp first came up with the concept for the Culture First podcast, we wanted to do something a bit different from what currently exists in the workplace and management podcast space. There are some really great podcasts that go deep with just one guest, and I've definitely used a lot of them as inspiration and education for this show. But we really liked the idea of hearing from multiple guests in each episode. So we actually wanted to come up with a bit of a formula and some different categories of how we would pick guests because there's hundreds if not thousands of people that I would love the chance to be interviewing. So the three categories of guests that we came up with. The first one, well-known thought leaders to inspire you. These are people like Esther Perel who you heard from in episode one. The second one is industry leaders with really actionable takeaways that you can implement in your company. Episode two featured people like Ambrosia Vitesse and Molly Graham to really go deep into some things that you can do to improve your culture and your company. And then the final category. So these are people that you might not yet know, but we think that you should we've really gone, you know, far and wide to kind of really reach out to some incredible thinkers and not the typical ones who you might know from the people and culture space or the human resource space or the management thinking space. These are people with really different backgrounds who are tackling some of the most important subjects that don't always get talked about. We hope that these guests will challenge some of our assumptions and really inspire us with new stories to improve the world of work. So on episode three of Culture First, we're going to be hearing from people from that very last category, and I'm excited to really introduce them to you. If you do a quick Google search, you'll find that Beloved is simply defined as Dearly Loved. That's a really high bar for any person or entity to reach. If I was to try to think of someone who many would agree to be beloved, the first name that's coming to mind is Hugh Jackman. I can't think of anyone who doesn't love Hugh Jackman. Plus he's a triple threat, he can sing, he can dance, he can act, he can do it all really. Uh, Hugh, if you're listening, I'd love to have you on the show. But this is not a podcast about Hugh Jackman. Within your own life, a significant other can be your beloved, right? But what about organisations? Can an organisation be beloved or have a beloved? Well, according to Pamela Oshoke abalu and Chinedo Eturo, the answer is yes. They have built their company Love & Magic around the idea that organisations can truly seek to serve both their customers and their employees, and in so, become what they refer to as a beloved organisation. Before Love & Magic, Oshoke was the chief architect at MetLife where she implemented ecosystem innovations and ideas like smiles per square foot. And throughout her career, she has led the transformation of over $1 billion of workspaces for thousands of individuals in 65 countries. Chineidu was the founder and chairman of HopStop, a navigation app company that would be sold to Apple in 2013. He's also a serial entrepreneur, and his background is truly fascinating. In this episode, we're going to be talking about an idea that Ashoké and Sineadu have developed called the Beloved Organization. What is it and how do we go about creating one? This episode dives into a question that impacts all employees and managers. It's something that I think will become even more important in 2020 due to the rise of mission-driven organizations and people really wanting to focus on more than just what they do at work, but why they do it and who they're doing that work for. So the question that I want you as listeners to think about during this episode is, how do we improve the understanding and relationship that we have with the customers, community, and people that we're building for? Today I'm joined by Pamela Ntunadu of the Love & Magic Company. Thanks so much for having this conversation with me today. Thank Thank you for
3: having us.
0: Your company has two words in it that are used quite often in the world, love and magic. But when used together, it's quite interesting. How do you actually think about these words in a way that might be different to how the normal public might define those words?
3: I think empathy is one. The idea that your customer is your beloved and that in your product and in your service you have an opportunity to love them and your product is that magic that loves them. Mm. So I think empathy as innovation... I think um, meeting and solving unmet needs as innovation. So you take love and magic and you apply it to the concept of work, why not?
1: A concept of love in my mind is almost like the totality of everything, like all information, all possibilities. And then magic is just, just the technology of how we can make it happen. So love is like all potential then I think there's something also powerful in the the notion of oneness. And I think that's that's probably the closest concept to love, I think, is the idea of unity and oneness, right? And I think there's power in that oneness.
0: Why do you think the world needs more love and magic in it right now? Because I think it's clear that even
1: though um, the modern economy and the global economy has brought so much um, blessings to the world—you know, shelter, food, entertainment, and even fun—what's um, clear is that something is unhooked. Right, the systems that we've that has brought us so many material blessings are also resulting in all kinds of unintended uh, consequences. And I think uh, for us at the Love and Magic Company, our Intention is that we can design those. We can be more thoughtful about the systems we use to organize ourselves. Be more thoughtful of how we work together. Be more thoughtful about what we create together. And I think it's that new thinking that's really, um, I think, is the reason why we're we're doing what we're doing.
0: Your mantra is "work is love made visible." What were the experiences that actually, you know, came to you for you to actually create that mantra in the first place? <clears throat>
3: So I, I particularly love that Khalil Gibran mantra. It's 100 years old and the line out of it that resonates so strongly for Love and Magic Company is that he asks, what is it to work with love? And he answers, it is to build a house as if your beloved were to dwell in it. Work is love made visible. So it's the idea that we as as members of this human experience together, we're all participating, consciously or unconsciously, in new systems for the future. And so, when we can take into consideration how to address human potential, how to address human growth into our planning, um, this is the this is really the core of showing up in love and for the beloved.
1: Yeah, I mean, I means it's. Sometimes the concept of love is, isn't used at work most of the time. Mm. But you wonder why, right? So if the goal is to serve your customers, why are you stopping? Why are you drawing a line in which how much you can love them? And I think um, corporations that really embrace this notion of love, true love, at least practical love or expressive love, at least attention and empathy for your customers, when it's so, so clearly... True. So I think it's, a, it's time for us to really revisit our relationship with the people who we serve. And, and as Pamela mentioned, let's make it an act of care because mm-hmm. it actually results in revenue and customers and satisfaction and
0: shareholder everything everybody wants. A term that used to be used a lot was, you know, your life's work or a life's work. And that used to actually be very literal, you know, like this is what I do, I'm gonna do it for 60 years and this is my life's work. Now workers have a very temporary relationship with a lot of people, you can have multiple jobs at once, you can be quite disconnected from your work. So I think what you're really saying is that there's a version of, of the world that we can exist when you actually reconnect back to it, like it is your life's work, even if you might work at multiple places or have multiple experiences.
3: Absolutely, and what if we add that to all of our baselines? So in all of our unique complexities as organizations and individuals, what if we start to say, how are we improving lived experiences with all that we do? How am I improving my employees' lives? What if we all started to do this slowly? Mm. And that's the idea when you think about starlings in flight, they're these birds and they're coordinated. So what if our coordination, we recently wrote a piece for fast company a thought piece what if our coordination of symphony is all organizations having the same purpose of working towards improving a lived human experience?
0: I love that you brought up symphony because when I analyze work and when I look at like the ways that we describe work, so many metaphors get used as sporting metaphors right When it talk about strategy or teams or cohesion or you know achieving success you know for a goal, symphony is a really interesting way to think about it. It's a you know, more poetic way, it speaks to different people. Why does that word mean so much to the two of you when you think about you know, designing with symphony in mind? Mm.
3: Symphony is a composition of different parts. Symphony is the flute and the piano working together as equal and, ent- and participants in harmony, in you know, a greater harmony, so it doesn't matter what you're doing or who you are, what your perspective is, your unique difference participates in this in this orchestra. Yeah. So there's power also in recognizing that what we've met is what we refer to as diversity. So as human beings, we've just met diversity in work. Our opportunity is symphony. Yeah so we can continue to operate in the same thing we've met. But that's spinning and that's not growing. We're saying symphony is an opportunity to say, all right, diversity is a range of different parts. It's like we're clanking. How do we start to honour each other's complexities and work together in service to human growth?
0: Mm. Yeah, We've spoken about team dynamics, structure, but like designing, you can also physically design a space that actually allows these things to you know, come to fruition. And Pamela, you've done this in your career. So creating an inclusive environment, most people think about actually the types of you know, behaviors or people, but like you've also physically designed spaces to make them more inclusive. How do you approach something like that?
3: <laughs> in the same way, it's really identifying who your beloved is and uh, committing to improving their lived experience. So in my work, in my former work as the chief architect for a large insurance company, our goal was to improve the lived experience of 75,000 people. And so a small team, really, of unique individuals came together to do so. I always talk about, in addition to baseline metrics being exceeded, we, we treasured writing our mother's love letters in their mother's rooms. We treasured tracking how many people brought their kids to work after a renovation or before a renovation. So there was this very clear intention to solve this unmet need of improving the lived experience. And so uh, that was in physical space, which is great, but with technology, what that does, and in all of our collective ability is to reach each other even grander even bigger is how do we just in our unique superpowers so my unique superpowers as an architect and the people who worked on it were focused on architecture and space but all of us each of us in our complexities how do we fine-tune this i think HopStop is also a great story about how You know, Chineadu really showed up in love for people who get lost in the subway. How do you show up in service to improve in something another human being goes through?
0: Ashoke is referring to Chineadu's previous work as the founder and chairman of HopStop, a mobile app that gave you real-time directions for walking, biking, busing and subwaying around large cities. Eventually, HopStop would actually be purchased by Apple and integrated into Apple Maps. Jinead talked about how his own experience trying to navigate the New York City subway system helped him design a product with value and purpose for the consumer at the heart of it. Sometimes one of the challenges of the, of the capitalism
1: is that that question of who do you serve is rarely asked. Right? So what if when you, go into your, uh, when you go to dinners and people then ask, um, well, you know, what's your title? Like, who do you serve? Whose, whose lived experience do you improve? Mm. what well, if we walked around with that almost that question and that and that answer and everybody was asked well, the thing I do at work for eight hours a day is like who does it help right and I think um, I think what's happening now in the world is people are asking these kinds of questions more and more but I think um, I, I don't know when but I think there'll be a time where, That's the question. In fact, there's going be so much social pressure even answering that question in a way that makes sense, much more so than now.
0: When I read about your background and what I love about that story is I think it's another great story that the world needs of a business that ends up being very successful, but ultimately that was not the reason you created that business. It was to serve a group of people through an experience that you also were trying to actually better yourself. That just happens to then go on to create it, you know, a great business. And when I think about the meaning that employees are trying to find with their work, more and more people will continue to be drawn to companies like that. And when you think about the types of corporations that people worked for 20, 30 years ago compared to now, I think so much of our own identity ends up being absorbed into the company that we work for based on how how much we give to them Mm -hmm. and how much they ask of us. So like what what we
1: value is changing. Mm. And um companies that really recognize that, um, align themselves to that phenomena and, and find talent and energy people who want to achieve those goals, I think are eventually going to keep on winning. So in many ways it's almost a it's a corporate necessity that CEOs and boards elevate the nature of their work. You know, we've talked about the low engagement rates. Why? Mm. The reason why people aren't engaged at work because they're not really into it, right? So what's a way to get people get into it, right? It's to imbue it with meaning. And what is meaning? A Meaning is to be able to improve the lives of, of some sense of community, some sense of your greater self, right? Mm. And I think so if you extend that, right, you, you, you're back to love. love, right? You're back to the human experience and you're back to designed for another human being, even whether they're in Malaysia or in, uh, in uh, Brooklyn.
0: A lot of what we've just heard Sinead talk about gets to the heart of employees feeling engaged and having meaning in their work. After listening to these stories, you might be wondering about what can you do as a manager or as an employee on a team to actually improve employee engagement in 2020? To help you, I looked at our 2019 Global All Industries Benchmark. Now, this includes data from all of the companies we're using the CultureAMP platform that were asking questions about employee engagement to their employees. This is a highly robust and reliable benchmark, and it provides a really useful representation of employee experience across all the industries, geographies, and functions that we have data on. Now, if you were to focus on two things to improve employee engagement in 2020, where should you start? Well, Perceptions of learning and development opportunities and confidence in leaders has the greatest impact on improving employee engagement. Now, when we think about this, this actually maps really well to the principles of the beloved organisation, which focused on things like collective human growth and maximising the flow and use of information. I'd argue that we all want to feel like we are growing at work. And at leaders, we need to be thinking about not just whether our message is being heard, but is our message landing with our teams? After speaking with Ashoke and Chinedu, I did some research into the organizations that I think have done a really great job of building with their customers at the heart of their strategy. The first thing that came to mind was, who are the companies that have done a really great job of actually building a community around their company and around their product? One of the most famous examples of this and one of the most famous examples of community building that I can think of is the Salesforce Trailblazer community. If you haven't heard of it, then I suggest you do a quick Google image search for the Dreamforce conference that they run each year. Tens of thousands of people from all around the world come together to learn and grow and connect. It truly is a sight to be seen. So to learn a little bit more about how do they actually build this community, I reached out to their former VP of community, Erica Cool, to learn a little bit more about it.
2: I think it comes back to metrics and data. and, And I never thought that that was going to be something that was A forte of mine, or something even that I was going to love, because I really set out to be a community builder. I was the quote unquote people person and I was a connector. But I recognized that if I wanted to continue this mission and this vision that I had for what this community could be for Salesforce, I was going to have to put some proof points in place. And I also knew that it took a a coordinated effort across the organization, like you mentioned. And I knew that there was value in different ways Uh, that the community provided value to the different parts of the organization in different ways. It was my job to put that in place, to show the value proposition to each parts of the organization in the way that spoke to them. So I took the opportunity to step back and figure out the value proposition for organizations like marketing, for organizations like the product organization, for organizations like uh, support, and organizations like customer success. And they're different because the community offers value for maybe um, building loyalty and driving down attrition for customer success. Whereas for support, it might be case deflection. And for a product, it might be delivering the very best product and, and insights into the product. And for marketing might be incredible brand awareness and and growth in that sense so it it needed i needed to be able to show that and once i was able to show that it became a lot easier to gain mind share to to make the community start the momentum start really going up into the right
0: so imagine you're listening to this and you're saying yeah i definitely want to be part of a more beloved organizational model i want to better understand the people that we're doing this work for you know what advice do you have for a manager of a team that's actually looking to build a stronger sense of connection to a customer base or a community who might feel like they're currently lacking in that?
2: Uh, I think there's some critical elements that people forget about, and I just recently did a talk on this. I'm very passionate about this personally and professionally. is about listening. I think that people are really terrible listeners, and uh, they do a lot of talking and they don't listen or Um, they don't just shut up and take a step back and listen and let the passion bubble out. They think they know best. Uh, And I think that that's a core element that makes connection to your customers a lot easier is when you truly want to hear what they have to say. And you're not just paying lip service, but you ask them what um, what they want. And then you sit back and you close your mouth and you listen. Then once you hear the excitement and the passion bubble up, you then become their their conduit to make it happen within the company. And so there's some critical elements, obviously, that have to be there. You have to take action. You have to listen to them. You have to um, have a portion dedicated to what they have to say uh, because then that's 100% the way to get go a different direction is to listen to what they have to say and then do something totally different. So you have to have a culture in which you're going to listen and then act on that. Um, so I think those are those are some critical things that people could do to be more customer focused and to, if they're struggling with it, it is some easy way to to try to shift focus is to, is to ask, be curious and sit back and listen and shut up.
0: <laughs> in many ways, the idea of like self organizing teams, um, you know, also plays out in communities where you're actually trusting, you know, local groups of people online, or <laughs> offline to self organize to create a sense of meaning. So you know, considering your you know world class e- expertise in building community, what's one piece of advice that you've learned from the community world that could translate to the idea of uh, a self organizing team inside of a company?
2: I think that one of the things I learned the most and that I I battle the most um, when I when people are trying to create these environments of self organized teams is uh, is control and trust. So there is a sense of control that has to have to be a little bit out of control and not in the sense that everything's going crazy, but a sense that you don't get to necessarily control every single element. So it's a matter of um, the example I always use is when um, you have a bowling alley, and when you want to create some sort of control, you put bumpers down. The, the gutters to create a, a sense that the ball should be going eventually down at the end. It's usually used with, with kids or people learning how to bowl. And, and the ball doesn't take a straight shot down. It bumps off of the sides of these bumpers along the bowling alley. But, you know, eventually everybody's going towards the end goal. And everybody's path a little bit different. But I looked at my job in the community as creating those bumpers down the side, but allowing people to still have their own way of getting to the end goal, providing um, those loose frameworks and guidelines. So I think the same thing goes with, you know, self-forming teams inside is that you don't get to control every little element, but having a clear vision and goal and, and knowing that everybody's going towards that and then letting them arrive at that in their own unique way that makes sense for them.
0: During our conversation, Erica points out something really important about better understanding the customers that you're building for. It's very simple, but can often be overlooked.
2: Yeah, and it, it's shocking to me. Well, I'd have product managers, i talk to them and i "You say, you know, do you have any interest in coming to talk to customers about the latest release? And they're like, talk to customers? Talk to actual customers? Like, yes talk to them. And, And I'm like, where do you live? You live in Wichita, Kansas. You live in, you know, Nebraska or you live in India. You live in Seattle, wherever. And like wherever you live, you have an opportunity to go talk to customers. And it is amazing to me that they maybe had not talked to customers before and they're building a product. It's shocking to me. And then you start doing that. It starts filtering through the organization. Like, oh, I'm you know, I'm an engineer and I've, I've never talked to, to customers before, or, you know, and it's, it's amazing. And it's so empowering to give them an opportunity to connect with people and to watch the mutual light bulbs going off between, you know, the customer is getting a chance to talk to a Salesforce product manager. Like they're like gods, so exciting. And then see the product manager, talk to this customer, give them this little tidbit of advice that they never even thought of because they hadn't ever talked directly to a customer. is like, it just creates this incredible win-win uh, situation.
0: It reminds me of the time that we were going out and just, you know, uh, interviewing some of our customers and going to some of the different locations that CultRamp has offices. And this story has stuck with me for so long because it's like we were there. We're just asking around, you know, it was a, a two-person human resource team and they were, you know, supporting this fast-growing company. And I was like, you know, like ultimately, you know, is there any stories that you you wanted to share of us just around, you know, the impact of working with Coltramp and what, you know, what it's had uh, for your customer base and, um, you know, what they shared back was ultimately the power and the impact that Coltramp's had on them is that it's actually, it's made their two-person HR team feel like a three-person team.
2: Mm.
0: And then I was like, wow. And I'm like, what do you mean by that? There was like, well, you know, from the platform, the support, the the community, all the different ways that you support us, you know, outside of just when we need support has always made it feel like we have access to this third person. I'm like, yeah. wow, like a whole full-time employee in value has been given to them. And like there was no question that you could ask that would we'll ever get that story out potentially, right, in any kind of formal thing. But when you open no. up the chance to talk to your customers in that way, you're like, wow, like that's who we're building for.
2: That's incredible. I love it. It just gave me the chills. (laughs) Yeah,
0: it it still gives me the chills to this day.
2: So,
0: (laughs) Organizations with a strong mission, uh, in in your opinion, automatically people, culture and customer first. And what differences do you see between those three approaches or is there even a difference between those?
2: I don't think anything's automatic. I think that this, this takes work. It takes mindfulness and focus. You know, I think that... And sometimes I think about it often and people often ask me about Salesforce. They're like, how did you how did you create this momentum? How is it possible that there's this rabid ecosystem of fans around really just an enterprise piece of software? And and, um, you know, or even just recently, someone was making a comparison to a hard time they were having building their community. And they said, oh, you you wouldn't understand because it's just the people around the Salesforce ecosystem, they're just different. And they're not. It, it takes work. It takes focus. And it takes energy and dedication to to make a, a culture to really like drive what a culture looks like. And you can never take your eyes off the ball. You need to be passionately just addicted to it or else it's going to take on a different a different path that's why it's critically important that every person on my team shared that same uh personality trait when it came to just being uh being a servant leader and being the 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 success of others was way more important than the success of us um as a team i think it takes work and I think it's important who you put in these positions to be the face of it and the personality of it. And it takes on that personality. Um, so, no, I don't think even if you're mission driven, you still have to work, work toward it and, and really create the behaviors together that you want. And then, it, you know, you think about it. It's nice to have it. It's nice to like be mission, have that mission. And at Salesforce, we, we grew up with a, a foundation where uh, we had a culture of one 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 percent of our employees' time went to volunteerism. 1% of our product was, was given to nonprofits for free and 1% of our equity was offset. So it's, it we are also mission driven, but it still takes work and still takes passion and focus.
0: One of the things that I took away from my conversation with Sineadu, one of the many things that I took away from my conversation was how do we take complex things like subway systems, Organizational structures, or a group of starling birds, and break them down to understand how we can actually maximize the flow of people, information, or better understand how these birds are flying together. Now, when we try to step back and look at all of these examples from afar, they can all look quite complex to navigate and understand. I know standing in front of a foreign subway system for the first time and trying to understand how you're going to get from A to B on your own can be really confronting. I might be speaking from personal experience. So what we heard To speak about was this idea that idle teams should be about you know six or seven people. He then references this group of starling birds in flight, which looks incredible from afar. And to the naked eye, it appears that this huge group of birds are actually all moving as one giant team following the same lead. Now if you don't know what I'm talking about here or if you can't visualize it, I really recommend checking this out on YouTube if you're unfamiliar with Starlings, or just in need of a momentary hypnosis. I might not recommend that you do it right now while listening to this podcast, but I do recommend that you check it out. So although it appears like hundreds of these birds are all in sync, what is actually happening here? Well, what is happening is that starlings are actually working in small teams, where they flock together with about 5-10 to neighbours either side of them. By following the lead of a small group of birds around them, it actually allows the behaviours and patterns to look like an entire system is all moving together as one cohesive unit. So my question for you as the listener is, after listening to that, are your teams structured to work like Starlings, and how are you maximising the flow of information to help your teams move with speed? One of the things that I found fascinating about my talk with Ashoké and Shinedu is this idea of how can we foster innovation within our organisations. It's come up in our previous episodes and I know it's going to come up again. One of the Love & Magic's three cornerstones focuses on the idea of a decentralized self-organizing team. So I want to know a little bit more about how those teams are structured. So from Fortune 100 companies to a manufacturing manager, I think a lot of people have the ability to actually influence teams, team structures, and how we sort of come together to do our work. Jeff Bezos famously said that if you can't feed your team with two pizzas, the team is too big. Thinking about the work that you do, do you have an idea around what the ideal team structure should be in terms of size?
1: Yeah, we do. And I think we've, um, as part of our work, we've obviously spent lots of time really studying and researching this. And in our view, the ideal team is somewhere between six and seven uh, people. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, there's so much about human communication that's bound by these very real conversations, and um, and to one of the challenges with large corporations, the teams get so big, right? There's there isn't clarity of action, there isn't um, there isn't personal accountability in terms of doing the things that need to be done. I think based on our research and our thinking, even starlings um, are actually um, the birds um, we mentioned actually. They get all their, they're able to move with such complexity and such beauty with just really having relationships with six other starling birds around Mm -hmm. them. So that beautiful dance you see is really about just small teams of six or seven birds just doing their thing. I think that's a great metaphor for what um, modern corporation can also be. Mm -hmm.
3: But we don't call them teams, we call them super friends. It's this whole idea as well that work can be an adventure with purpose in mind, and you can build, when you think about the Margaret Mead quote, that a group of small citizens can change the world, um, that a small group of citizens can change the world. So what if you started a design for super friends Mm. to accomplish tasks, great tasks? That's another thing I love about Mm -hmm. how we formulated a new model of working.
1: So I think it's time for us to really rethink Human organization and almost be intentional about the design of those systems because it has very real effect. Probably the number one stressor of most people is really just work. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's a part of a human experience that no one's really really been very thoughtful about, and I think it's time that that we do that that Mm -hmm. we uh, really be designers of not just our own cultures, our own products, in our own processes, but be designers in every aspect of our
0: our lives. I want to paint a picture and I would love some sort of parting advice from the two of you on this subject. Let's imagine you don't have access to a world-class architect, there's zero budget, you don't have any say over the size of the team that you're trying to build. What advice do you give to an aspirational leader who does want to sort of embody some of the philosophies that you have to build a team like the teams that we've been talking about?
1: Sure, great question.
0: Um, What do you want to do?
3: (laughs) I'm going to go back to our three keys. And we call them keys for a specific reason. One, a key unlocks a lot of potential. It's not a step. There's so much that could happen like a pebble in an ocean. And second of all, it's musical. It's an invitation. And the first key goes back to the beloved. Regardless of what you have to do, the team you're forming, are you an individual, are you an organization? What is the purpose? You can do that without budget. Mm. And grounding in in what purpose, your service, your organization, what purpose does it serve is the first and fundamental key. The second key is in how you design your teams, even in how you start to bring people together. Who
1: are you bringing in? Who are you bringing
3: in? Is there an alignment? Is there a friendship? Is there, in these small teams, how are you doing that? And the final one, which is my favorite, is to make no assumptions. A lot of times we move forward on projects with assumptions. This goes back to what Shinido always talks about, maximizing the flow of information with everything out there, the newest technologies, the people on your team. How are you ensuring that you're not blocked? You're not making assumptions. So, those three keys we share with leaders, with organizations, and everything that you're doing. Just ask yourself those additional questions and use these additional keys. Yeah.
0: I think the idea of empathy for your customer has come up more and more. But what you're talking about is going one step beyond that, which is not just empathy for a customer, and you're talking about any customer it's like what does it mean to call them your beloved to go that little bit further to truly understand what matters and motivates them when you share that story i truly think about like my beloved what would it look like to create and design and work for them
1: exactly what if you were designing a product for your mother Mm. like how would you think about it would you consider? Would you figure out what she wants? Would you anticipate her needs? Would you, you know, you would, you would, you would, you would treat her in a way that would make her a loyal customer. Right? Mm. So why wouldn't you do that for you, for your other customers? And I think what we found is that when you language this epic feat of creation in the in a very human way, and so then it, it rallies the, the organization. Uh, you know, people talk about the declining engagement rates in the U.S. I think our view is that um, one of the challenges with that is because the notion of work has been detached from the human experience. And what if we could recast our work mm. as love me divisible, as helping another human being? I think that would do a much in terms of rallying human energy, human action towards everything everybody, uh, everybody wants.
0: So I've got some rapid fire questions. Normally, this is me doing it to one other person. Mm-hmm. Considering there's two of you, would you be willing to answer the questions mm-hmm. thinking about the other person's answers?
1: Think about it or seeing what the other person would say.
0: So if I was to ask you a question, you need to say it and what you think Pamela would say. Oh,
1: I see, okay, that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's okay. okay. Yeah.
0: So we'll go back and forth. So Tornado, this is asking you, okay. answering, answering on Pamela, Pamela's okay. behalf. <laughs> so when Pamela feels most alive, what is she doing? She's given good experiences to people. Pamela, Mm -hmm. what does Chenea do love most about what he does?
3: Solving problems, complex problems.
0: Do we feel like those answers are good so far? One on one, okay, good start. Okay, so what's one thing about this industry that uh, really frustrates Pamela? Care of the customer. Mm -hmm. A lack of care? Yeah, a lack of care of the customer. What's one thing that Geneva cares about more than most people?
3: Maximizing the flow of information, allowing information to come through. Mm-hmm.
0: This one's a little bit of a tough one, so okay. hope you're ready. Okay. What advice seems obviously right, is relatively easy to follow, but is usually ignored? And I want to get both of your answers for this one because I think it's going to be fascinating.
3: Do you want me to go first?
0: Yeah, you go first. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Uh, so Chinedu says, "Follow your curiosity."
1: Mm. Oh, I think I know what uh, the advice it is: um, take the the first step in every task. Take the first step. There's some action. Mm-hmm. Things are scary. Things are confusing, but take the first step.
0: It can be really hard to assess a company culture from the outside. If you're listening to this podcast, I can maybe safely assume that you have either applied for a job, interviewed for a job, or at least thought about getting a job at some stage in your life. Now, the rise of employer branding as its own function over the past decade has led to some really compelling world-class stories being told and campaigns being built to actually attract candidates. So this can make it really hard to actually better understand a company culture before joining. So the question that I want you to think about that's sitting with me after listening to this episode is... How can we actually analyse how a company interacts with their customers in their community to better understand what their culture might be like before we join? The third principle of a beloved organisation is to make no assumptions. Like many of you probably do, I spent the first few days of this new decade reflecting back on some of my key learnings from 2019. Now, the idea of no assumptions really stood out to me. We can do all the work in the world as leaders and as managers to foster belonging in our teams, set them up with the right team size and structure, and making sure we can do everything that we can to maximize the flow of information. But all of that hard work can be blocked or stopped in its tracks if we are working with assumptions and not working with clear agreements between our team members. For me, this was a really big focus area in 2019, and I hope that this episode has helped inspire you so that we can actually start this exciting new year, removing some of those assumptions, creating really clear agreements inside of our teams, and helping to maximise that flow of information. I hope that these stories have helped you to better understand how we can improve the LibHuman experience, both inside and outside of our organisations, through the way that we work. Thank you for sharing your stories today. I think when I look back on the year that is 2019, I will think about the fact that I got the chance to meet both of you and spend this time together and. Uh, yeah, I really wish it happened earlier in my life, but I'm building for legacy and building for, you know, my beloveds and I know that this conversation will hopefully it has inspired me and hopefully will inspire others. So thank you for taking the time to share your stories with us today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. A special thanks to Love & Magic's Pamela Ashoke abalu and Chineadu Achiru. If you want to learn a little bit more about their company and the idea of a beloved organisation, you can visit loveandmagic.company. And a reminder, we've got an incredible gift for our podcast listeners. We're offering a playbook from them called How to Bring Your Idea to Life. This playbook presents a systematic and scientific approach to organising teams and innovating. So, if you're ready to implement some of the ideas that you've heard from this episode, I suggest you start right here. Head to culturefirstpodcast.com slash love. I also want to say a special thanks to Erica Cool. She's the definition of a trailblazer for the years that she spent at Salesforce, and I had an absolute blast speaking to her. She's now sharing her learnings around community building with the world, because she's just opened up her own consulting business, and the team here at Culture Amp have really loved working with her. So if you want to learn a little bit more about her, you can head to her website, ericakuhl.com, which is spelled E-R-I-C-A-K-U-H-L. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Culture First podcast. A quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by CultureAmp. CultureAmp is the leading people and culture platform. So if you're listening to this and you want to better understand your company culture in 2020, CultureAmp is ready to help you. Head to cultureamp.com to learn more. It's time for a sneak peek into what's in store for the next episode of the Culture First podcast. Episode 4's guest is going to go down as a career highlight for me. I sat down with the one and only Simon Sinek. We spoke about the idea of an infinite mindset organization, as well as some of the actual traits that make for a culture first company. You'll also hear from the CEO of a publicly traded company who's putting culture first, as well as my own personal coach, where we speak about resilience. The next episode is jam-packed with stories and takeaways. So if you haven't sent this podcast to the managers at your organization, now is the perfect time to do so. Head to culturefirstpodcast.com to subscribe. All right, we'll see you in two weeks.